Well, that is why we are here this morning, because he's worthy of that. The hardest part about only preaching every once in a while is narrowing down what to preach on. I've been so excited uh, to preach again, and uh, because I really enjoy the preparation time, but I mean, there's such good stuff in scripture. Oh, we could just do the whole thing, but as I was talking to the childcare workers this morning about that, they said, if you go really long, you may see one of those little red buggies just come on through here in the middle just to remind me what time it is as they stare at me as they go through, so we'll make sure we get out on time, um, but that, that's the most exciting part for me is narrowing down what to teach on uh, because the, the depth and the breadth of Scripture is so, so wonderful. And so as I was thinking through um, and praying through what, what in the world should I teach on this morning, um, I just kept thinking about the type of church I want to be a part of. And even as we sang that, I just thought, this is not supposed to be like any other civic organization. And there's, there's supposed to be something different about God's people. Not that there's anything wrong with civic organizations and Lions Clubs and things to do good things in the community. But the church is not a community organization to take care of our community. We're, we're supposed to be part of something much bigger than ourselves, much greater than we can imagine. And I think if we really sat down and talked about it, there's something within us that longs for that. I don't think you want to be part of a church that just you come in on Sunday mornings, you make sure that AC's going, you, you talk to a few friends, you drink some coffee, tell a few jokes, and then you go out. I mean, what good is that? There's, there's no power in that. There's, I mean, we can do that anywhere. There's supposed to be something different when God's people gather and, and being God's people. And as we look at Scripture, I think, I think the church has often lost her way because she's become distracted. We have, we have found things that have, have taken our attention away from the greatness of our God. And there's a reason why in Hebrews we're told not to forsake the gathering of ourselves together. Because we need to remind each other that God is worthy of a life set apart for him. And that may be the question we need to wrestle with this morning is, first and foremost, have you found him worthy of that? Or are there things in your life that you've said, actually, this is a little bit more important and so as I, I taught, thought through a passage, I thought, you know, often when we, when we look at or when we talk to friends and family, the older they get, the more they talk about what matters. In fact, I had lunch with a guy this week that said, you know, the older I've, I've become, the less I want to talk about things that aren't important. Like, I just want to talk about things that are important. Our, our, our focus begins to narrow. As I was even preparing, you know, I had this broad idea of Scripture, and then as we started getting closer and closer to this date, I began to narrow down my focus. And that's what Scripture is trying to get us to do. Like, God wants us to narrow our focus to what matters. And so we see some of the last words of Jesus. I mean, the most important things he can say in the end. Not, not that anything else he didn't say was important, but at the end of his life, he said the same message before the crucifixion and after the resurrection. His message was similar. Go and make disciples. Go and be my witnesses. Those are the most important things he could say before the ascension. And then we look at a writer like Paul, who his last books that he writes are First and Second Timothy, and in those books, I think sometimes we look at Paul like he's a mythical creature. 
We talk about Paul, and we're like, oh my goodness, oh, you're talking about Paul. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost in a lot of people's mind, you got Jesus, and then you got this tiny little gap between Jesus and Paul. Paul would be horrified by that thought. Like he was just a broken man like anybody else in this room. I mean, they, they, there was no doubt he loved the Lord above all else. But he was also sinful and struggled with those things. There's a reason why Romans 7 is written. is He's talking about that struggle with sin. And so we, we look at sometimes in Scripture and we make people out to be who they're not. In fact, Paul more than seven times will say, imitate me or live like me. And he says those things because he expected everybody to live like he did. Okay. We now look at this and think he lives, lives some extraordinary life where he looked at it and thought, why doesn't everybody live like this? Because Paul had found the secret of contentment. That life will distract, life will come at us with all these different things, but all that matters in the end is God. The only things that are eternal are God, his word, and people's souls. And yet, do we live a life that reflects that? And that's what I really want us to ponder today. We're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 2. You can open your Bibles to that passage. And, and Paul, even in this passage, tells you, ponder these things. Think about these things. In Acts 20 and 21, um, Paul has set his face towards Jerusalem. I mean, he, he knows the end is near. And he actually talks about in chapter 21 that the Spirit has, has been warning him or preparing him that when he got to Jerusalem that he would be arrested and death awaited him. And he meets the, the elders in Ephesus, or the elders of Ephesus come to him. And, and it actually says in chapter 19 that through the Spirit, they, they beg him not to go. Not because the Spirit was saying don't go, but because they knew what awaited him. And they knew that he was going to die. And Paul's encouragement to them was, I've always known that was the end. Since I was brought out of darkness, I was brought out of darkness for a purpose. What, what I've loved about Paul and the way he writes is when Paul was blinded on the road to Emmaus, even when he received his sight, he was still blind. He just was blind to everything else in the world but Christ. And that is my prayer for us as God's people, that nothing else would matter. And I can tell you right now, no sermon's gonna do that. No message is gonna do that. Only the power of the living God dwelling within us can blind us to everything else. But we as God's people need to encourage and remind each other of that. Because I'm not standing up here in, in perfection. We're not gonna lay out my sins today. Not, that's for another day. But today, we're gonna look at scripture and talk about what it is to be accountable to each other. Because that's what we're called to do. And as Paul writes this letter, what I've always loved about First and Second Timothy is the humanity of it. Paul is, is laid bare. I mean, this is the end of his life. He's in a prison cell in Rome, and he is writing his final letters that he knows. So he's, he's writing what is most important to his heart because he knows this is the last time he'll be able to do these things. And I've, I've never liked that these are called the pastoral letters. They're often referred to as the pastoral letters. And so when people read that, they think, oh, well then my pastor should be reading this, not me. There's nothing in scripture that's just for pastors, just so you know. That 
Paul actually in this passage will say, entrust this to faithful people who will now teach this to others. So he's even coming against that in this. But we, we have this idea, and I've heard it was, it was actually interesting while I was studying how many commentators and writers who talk about this passage make it sound like, well, this is for pastors. I thought, they, they don't say that anywhere in there. I mean, just the fact that he wrote to Timothy was only because Timothy he knew would still be alive. So he's writing to Timothy so that he'd be found faithful. He tells him, stay in Ephesus and teach these things that I'm about to tell you. And then Paul's gaze begins to focus because he has this broad view for most of his ministry. I mean, Paul's the one at the end of Romans 16 will say, I have reached all of Asia. I mean, imagine the bold statement that is. Have you ever pondered that? That he would say, I've reached Asia. Now he's talking about Central Asia in a lot of ways, but still a continent. I've reached it and now I'm coming to Rome. And that, that's quite a statement. But Paul had poured out his life planning these churches. And these churches now were being faithful. But in First and Second Timothy, you see, you see a Paul who's broken, who, who feels isolated and left alone. And he'll say that all of Asia has actually forsaken me. But then he strengthens himself, but he says, the Lord has never forsaken me. And so as he's writing these letters, please don't read these and think these don't apply to you. And my hope and prayer this morning is that we won't read this, and which is often a danger when we look at scripture to think, ooh, I wish my spouse was here. She really needs to hear this one. Or man, I wish my kids were here. Don't, don't fall in that trap. For a moment, listen to scripture and say, Lord, what is this for me? And my prayer is that the word of God will cut us to our very core and remind us what matters. Because that's his point in this passage, to remind us what matters. Because in the end, he's all that will be left. And I know it may feel far off. It's amazing to me when I was 16 how old 50 sounded. 50 right now sounds amazing to <laughs> me. And I'm sure when I'm 60, I'll think, oh, 80, you're just a kid. You're just getting started. It's amazing how much we push that back. The fact is, we will all fall on our face before the Lord someday. And it's coming faster and faster. My prayer is whether you're 12 in here or 90, my prayer is that your gaze will find focus in what really matters. And that there's not a day that you stand there and say, I regret, regret so much of my life because I focused on things that did not matter. But that you can start now and say, today is the day that I will seek the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. So before we begin, let me, let me pray for us and then we'll dive into 2 Timothy chapter 2. Father, I thank you that you are worthy of a life set apart for you. Lord, I, I confess even in this room now that so many things in this world take our gaze. And I pray, Father, this morning that we would be a people that are desperate before you, desperate for you to speak and to change us because we cannot do it on our own. Everything within us, our flesh, battles you, Lord. And I pray, Father, that we would be a people and a church that the 
morning would become blind. Blind to all the world's temptations. We would be imitators and reproducers of your word. For you are worthy of a life set apart. May you be glorified this morning as we study your word. We love you, Lord, and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Timothy chapter 2. So Paul is, is, is writing to Timothy, but in a, such a way that it needs this to be reproduced. And in chapter 1, he's, he's given a lot of encouragement to Timothy because Timothy is watching Paul's life and realizes this is the end. If, if this is the end of a life set apart for the Lord, he's going to get his head chopped off. Now don't separate yourself from this and act like this is just a, a Netflix show. This is real life that Paul loved Timothy, Timothy loved Paul, and he knew this was the end of his ministry. And so the first chapter, Timothy, Paul is trying to encourage Timothy. And he's, he's encouraging him and reminding him of the struggles of living a life faithful to the Lord. And then in verse 1 he says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the, Christ, by, by the grace that is Christ Jesus. All of Asia has turned away. Paul is telling him, don't, don't find your encouragement in the things in this world. Don't find your encouragement in things that will fade. Be strengthened in Christ Jesus, in the grace that has been stored upon you. Then in verse two, he says, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So there you go. We, we, we got her out. We can't, you can't turn it off now. You can't not pay attention. And just so you know, I can see you very clearly. So, you know, don't fall asleep on me because I can see you. Don't, don't look at out there. There has been times, I'm, this is not an indication of what you're in for today, but you look out and somebody's had a long night and they're just kind of, you know, I, I think, can, I, can you not see that I can see you? So, yeah, I appreciate the feedback. You're welcome. Just, we, we talk back and forth. Somebody said they'd heckle me this morning. Go ahead. We can heckle. We'll go back and forth. Enjoy that feedback part. So you can't turn this off. And say, well, this isn't for me. He's saying, you entrust this, Timothy. Make sure other people hear this. And that's why we sit here today and are able to read this. So it's not just for Timothy, it's for all of us. So then here's where I want to focus. In verse 3, it says, share in the suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Suffering should not surprise us. We live, and, and let, me, let me preface this. I, I'm not a masochist. I don't, I don't long for pain and suffering. I'm not going to be up here and tell you, ooh, I'm really hoping today I get hit by a car. Or I hope I share the gospel with somebody and he punches me in the face. I, I don't, I'm not really looking forward to those things. But there is something unique about sharing in the suffering with the Lord. And he's not just talking about general suffering. There is that aspect that just in our lives that we suffer. One of the hardest things I've watched through the years is when we've had good friends or people in our churches who have walked away from the Lord when suffering comes. Because really, you can have one or two reactions when suffering comes. You can press into the Lord and know that he's good no matter what happens in our circumstances, or you can walk away and blame him for everything. I remember years ago reading a book called Why I Became an Atheist, and it was written by a former pastor. And um, 
Every, everything outside of scripture, I take like eating grapes. So I, I can eat the good stuff and spit out the seeds. Uh, I would encourage you that with anything. Scripture is all that matters. Use other stuff to read it, but spit out the seeds because everything else is written by somebody who has some ideas. But I remember in his book, really what came down to it, the reason why this pastor walked away from the face is he had a moment of suffering. And in his mind, God could not be good if I suffered. And that's a danger we often have as we equate our circumstances with God's character. And we actually stand in judgment over him. And we say, well, if this happened, then God cannot be good. And there's a very subtle danger to that. And the danger is this. What you say with that statement is you know better than the God of the universe who knows all things. Now that doesn't make suffering any less. But the fact is, as followers of Christ, suffering will come. No matter what you've heard in modern day religion, Jesus promised it. We are told that suffering will come. If we live a life sold out to the Lord, it will come. It will cost us something. So then he says in verse four, no soldier gets entangled in civil, civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Now ponder this for a minute. So I, I grew up in a military family and my father was military. And so I, it's hard for me to even describe him. I wish he was still alive so you could meet him. He says, for most of my childhood, I didn't believe he was birthed. I believed he was made in a factory government issued and he ran his home like he ran his troops I mean he lived for the military everything was done that way my father would come in my room with a white glove and use it to check my dust layers he did not play there's a day I left my shoes out in the living room and fell asleep in a nap I woke up my shoes were gone my father was sitting in the room and I thought hmm where are my shoes and I saw the trash can out by the curb. And I realized he got up, took my shoes, threw them in the trash, and took the trash to the curb to make a point. Put your shoes away when you come in. But my father lived that way because he believed he was part of something much bigger than he could ever imagine. And he ran his household that way. He would not be distracted by civilian things. I remember one night he had to leave because he, he would constantly, especially when we were in Europe at a time, he would constantly have to go out because one of his troops had gotten in a bar fight or something like that. And I remember night, he came back late and I, I woke up and I caught him coming in and I, we just had a discussion for a few minutes and I just asked, why, why do you constantly have to go out? Why do these guys get in so much trouble all the time? And I'll never forget him saying to me, because he was a soldier through and through. He said, because we weren't made for peacetime, I was made for war. And that's what my troops are trained for. And so when it's peacetime, we struggle because we were made to fight a fight. And that stuck with me my entire life. And the fact is, followers of Jesus in this room, you were made to fight a fight. And the reason why we fight all these dumb things in the church is because we're distracted. We, we fight about worship styles or we fight about locations of our churches. We fight about minutia of scripture rather than what is obvious because we've been distracted from really, what really matters. 
we become entangled in civilian affairs. And they are everywhere. I mean, I'm amazed now that it's hard if you sit in a room with someone to watch a movie to not see that they actually have their phone at the same time. So they're watching a movie and then scrolling through some feed at the same time. Like the movie isn't entertaining enough, then the phone's gotta be entertaining enough. And then I have a conversation. I mean, I'm amazed at how many things can entangle us. I mean, we live in a world that wants to distract us. Know this very clearly. Our enemy is brilliant. He does not come as a flood. He doesn't come overnight and say, hey, I need you to go murder somebody this week. It doesn't happen that way. It's very subtle. It's little things that begin to pull at us, that begin to entangle us, and we lose sight of what matters. And they're not always bad things. Here's where I think a lot of believers get tripped up, myself included. We think the only things that entangle us are things that are bad. Like we think, well, you know, I don't want to be entangled in some type of sin where, you know, I have an affair or I'm addicted to pornography or drinking or drugs or, you know, these big ones. We can recognize those often. We often don't recognize the things that are good in general that are entangling us. Maybe we're over activity driven as a family. Maybe every single night of the week we have something going on that's good for our kids, for our spouse, for ourselves, but we don't ever have time to sit down as a family and talk about God's word. We say with our lips, God is all that matters, and then we say, well, I'll see you on Sunday, God. Because we get entangled in things that do not matter. Can you imagine what the church would be like if God's people spent as much time in his word as, he, as they do watching Netflix? Can you just imagine how different we would be because these things entangle us and Paul is trying to encourage us do not get entangled because our aim is to please him who has brought us out of darkness like what matters to him should matter to us but I'm not saying this is easy there's a reason why God would say don't forsake the gathering of yourselves together because you need to be reminded. I need to be reminded. We need to be reminded all the time. I can tell you right now, you're going to leave here, go to lunch, and things are going to come at you to try and distract you. I'm already looking forward to lunch. I'm up here preaching, and I'm thinking, mm, lunch is going to be good. Mexican food sounds good. We are easily distracted. And so I want to be part of a church that says, let's refocus. I want somebody to stop me in the hallway and say, what are you reading this week in God's word? It's supposed to matter more than anything else. It breaks my heart that the greatest interaction that we've had in social media from the church was when the Astros won the World Series. Now, maybe it was because it was a miracle. They won the World Series. It's so exciting. Everybody wanted to talk about it. But it's, a, it's often all that people talk about is the sports team they love or the weather. Now, granted, it is hot, so it's a hot topic we want to talk about it. So I'm not saying we shouldn't have other things we have to do in life. It's okay to talk about your kids. Of course we should be talking about things in life. But my question is, do we challenge each other as families and as a church to say, are we entangled in things that do not matter? Because I would argue we all are. I've been here a little over two years now. No one has ever stopped me in the hallway and said, what are you reading in God's word? And just to make you feel better, I don't know if I've stopped anybody in the hallway and done it either. 
But that's the type of church I want to be part of. I want to be part of a church that says, God is above all else, and I don't want to be distracted. Help me not to be distracted. Show me that God is worthy of worship so that we would not be entangled. Because in the end, it's, this is important because he is worthy of it. One of my favorite passages in all scripture is Matthew 13. I'll just paraphrase it because we need to do the whole chapter. But in Matthew 13, Jesus is giving several parables and he tells the story of a man who finds a treasure in a field. And in verse 44, he says, in his joy, he went and sold everything he had to obtain the field. Now, he wasn't sad about it. He wasn't like, man, I don't know. It's gonna cost a lot to get that field. I really like my car or... I really like my house. I don't want to sell it. No, in his joy, he was excited. Get rid of everything because I found something that's worth more. And what has suddenly happened in our lives is the things that have no value begin to creep in and become valuable when they shouldn't be. And really, they become objects of worship and we don't even realize it. Worship is simple. It's what we assign worth to. And it doesn't mean these things aren't good. I'm not saying you should go home and tell your wife, you are trash. I just realized today you are worthless. Jesus is all the matter. That's not going to work out. I'm just going to warn you right now. Do not do that. But what you're saying is, in light of what I found in the field, I will not settle for what is just good. I want what is best. And God does this because he is worthy of it. That's why we should be jealous for the greatness of his name because nothing else is worthy of worship. Even though we will often assign it worth when it is worthless. It's not that the things of this world aren't good. They just entangle us and distract us. My heart is that we would be a people that say, what has entangled you in this world that does not matter? We will remind each other our aim is to please the one who has brought us out of darkness. And he is worthy of a life set apart by that. And then he continues in verse 5. He says, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Now this is important. Because you and I don't get to decide what pleases the Lord. Because here's the danger. We think, well, Jesus loves me. So I'll decide what pleases him. We don't get to do that. We don't get to make up the rules as we go along. He's very clear here. Your aim should be to please the Lord, not be entangled, but you have to run the race according to the rules. Only God gets a bad rap for having rules in order to be in relationship with him. Have you ever noticed that? The world will say, well, he just loves me. He should just be able to put up whatever I do because he loves me. So I've never told you guys this. But in order for me and you to be in a relationship, you can't smack me in the face every time we run into each other. I, I've never voiced that, but if, if that's the type of relationship we have, every time I see you, you just walk up and, I mean, I'm just not gonna come see you very often. We're just not gonna talk. Now, it's, it's an implied rule of relationships. Every relationship you have in your life, there are rules in order to be in a relationship. I mean, we don't always say them out loud. They're kind of expected, I mean, I expect my wife to be faithful. Now, we actually said that out loud when we got married, but that's an expectation. We all have expectations in relationships. So does God. But yet, for some reason, when he gives his expectations, we say, no, no, my God wouldn't do that. 
that's a very subtle danger. There's a thing called progressive Christianity that is slowly creeping into the modern church. And it's very subtle. You'll hear somebody say, well, I believe the word of God is inspired. And you say, well, so do I. But if you ask the question, what do you mean inspired? They say, well, it's inspired just like modern Christian music is inspired or it's inspired like Shakespeare was inspired when he wrote. That's very different than Orthodox Christianity. That's not, when I say the word of God is inspired, I'm talking about what the Bible describes as inspired, that, that the men of God who were chosen to write the words were carried along as they wrote the words of God. This, wasn't, this, isn't, this isn't a book like any other book, that it is authoritative. I need you to hear this. No matter what I say, you should take with a grain of salt. Anybody, no, and the reason why it's so subtle in the church is because it's being said by men who are well-trusted and loved, and they think, well, he wouldn't steer me wrong. We need to be people that know the book, that know the word of God. You should, if I say something that's anti-biblical, you should be the first one to stand up and say, wait, that, well, that's not what it says. But the problem is we have become a people who do not know the rules, we don't read God's word. And then we change him. And it's subtle. We don't notice it because we're entangled. Because we're not people of the book. We're not people who test everything in scripture. There has never been a generation that has more access to scripture and reads it less than the one we live in now. We need to be people that read the word. And if you're sitting here today going, oh... That's, that's me. I haven't read this week. Start today. Stop worrying about yesterday. It's gone. I, we cannot do anything with it. Do not allow guilt. Do not allow our enemy to whisper in your ear like you're not worthy. of. It. Go to the word. Start reading the word. I'll be practical in just a minute, but I, I, I need you to hear that if we do not understand who God is, we're in danger of being a people that he talks about in Matthew 7 who one day will stand before the Lord and said, we did great things in your name. Lord, we prophesied in your name. We healed people in your name. And he says, away from me, I did not know you. There are some people that are worried that you shouldn't ever question your faith. I say question your faith every day, meaning am I right before God? We, I'm not talking about whether you can lose your faith, those kind of things, but I would challenge you to say, do I live a life that reflects the truth of who God is? Does my life prove that I love the Lord? The God of creation, not a God I made up in my mind. And this isn't new. If you go back to Exodus chapter 19, Exodus chapter 19 is one of the most visually, in my mind, stimulating moments of scripture. So I'm a visual person. I get really excited sometimes when I read scripture and there's painting a picture. It doesn't always happen but there's sometimes when, when the writer is painting a picture. And in, in Exodus 19, Moses is painting the picture when God is coming down on Mount Sinai. The God of the universe is about to come down among men. And in 19, he begins to paint this picture. And he tells the people of Israel, prepare yourself. God is coming. I mean, I just get so excited even thinking about it. God is coming. Prepare yourself. And then, and then he says, don't touch the mountain. If anybody touches the mountain, you're dead. If an animal touches the mountain, it's dead. God is coming. Nobody touched the mountain. So then we read 19, God descends. And they can see his feet. 
and he descends and there's this dark cloud that drops and there's lightning and fire and then it's this, he describes the sound of a trumpet and you know in my mind I picture like you know the Lord of the Rings when the bad guy stars show up and they do that that big loud I can't do it but that big loud that's what I picture and he says it gets louder and louder I, I just imagine and then it says the mountain begins to quake and shake I just if you were standing there and seeing this happen imagine that just for a moment this is what's taking place and then God speaks from the cloud from the darkness and he gives the ten commandments and the people hear it and they say whoo Moses let's not let him talk to us anymore we didn't realize that's who you were talking to that dude is scary so why don't you go talk to him and then let us know what he has to say and God says, you know, that's actually a good idea because they're a stiff-necked people and I'm going to break out against them if I come down for them. And so over the next 12 chapters, Moses is talking with God and there's more of the law given. Then in verse chapter 32, it's a very famous passage, you all know it, it's when the golden calf shows up on the scene. And so Aaron makes the golden calf and he says something very interesting. When, when the Ten Commandments begin in chapter 20, God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. In chapter 32, Aaron says, as he makes the calf and brings it out, this is the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Tomorrow we will celebrate a festival to the Lord. And it will be in all caps in your Bible. And that all caps is he's literally saying, this calf is Yahweh here's what's happening in that moment often we read through that passage and think they've made another god to worship they didn't make another god they reformed the god of the universe in a, in a way that they could accept him god was no longer scary when he's this golden calf and reformed they could get on board with this little god who they're not scared about and worried about the god who came down on mount sinai was terrifying and so what they did is they just reformed him they changed the rules because they didn't like them. Nothing has changed. I don't know how many times I will hear people say, my God wouldn't do that. And I think, well, I don't really know who your God is. I just know the God of scripture. That's the question is what does he, what will he do? What are his standards? And if you're sitting here thinking, I'm not quite sure what those standards are. They are right here, just so you know. He hasn't hidden them. He's not trying to keep them secret from us. We should be people of God's word. I want to be in a church that put God's, puts God's word above all else. I would love to be a church that the first things out of our mouths when we see each other is, tell me what you're reading and how it's changing you. I would love that to be true of us. And we have to encourage each other to that. I want to be a people that talk about it with our spouses and our kids and our small group and our coworkers, whether they want to hear it or not. Let me tell you, God is changing my life. Oh my goodness. Here comes Scott. He's going to talk about Jesus all the time. I really hope that is your complaint before the Lord someday. I, I hope we spend the next 30, 40 years together, however much time the Lord gives us. And one day you stand before the Lord and say, oh, Scott's coming up behind us. That dude only talked about Jesus. I would love that. I would hope that's the complaint everybody that you know. But my prayer is, it's not a God we've made up in our mind or reshaped. It's the God of scripture. 
And the only way you're gonna know that is by being in his word. It's not overly complicated. The word of God is like an ocean so deep that you'll never touch the bottom, but so shallow that you'll never drown. You should never be intimidated by it because the greatest teacher the world has ever known dwells within you and will reveal God's truth to you. But then we also have each other. Scripture will always be meant to be read together. It's just God's design. Do not forsake the gathering of yourselves together so that we can talk about it together. I'm getting excited even thinking about it. We just need to talk about it more. But that's not where he ends. 2 Timothy verse 6. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. This is great news. So he's just said, don't be distracted. Don't get entangled by things of this world. Know the God you serve. Know the rules. Please him. And you know how to please him by understanding his word. And then he says, the farmer, the hardworking farmer, remember that hardworking farmer, who ought to have the first share of the crops. The great news of this is God is a God who rewards those who earnestly seek him. I mean, this has almost become a, a dirty phrase in the church. We, almost, we rarely ever talk about it because I think uh, Martin Luther once said that humanity is a drunkard who falls off the horse to the right or the left. He just can't stay in the saddle. And, th- and we've done that with works-based theology. We're so afraid of works-based theology that we won't talk about God rewarding us for our hard work. We're just terrified. We're like, no, I don't want anybody to think that, oh, what I did was so that Jesus would reward me. Over and over and over in scripture, God talks about the rewards he will give us for what we do. I mean, Paul was unashamedly would say, I am pressing on towards the prize that is Christ Jesus. And then he would talk about the crown that he would be given for it. Now, what all those rewards look like, I don't know. But what I want to bring clarity here is it's not wrong to say, I long to hear well done, good and faithful servant. I want the Lord to be pleased with me. I want him to reward me. He's promised to reward us for this hard work. We're so afraid that our, we'll work for salvation. And that's not what I'm talking about. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, you're saved by grace. But verse 10 talks about so that you will do good works. You've created to do good works. And God is a God who rewards those works. Hebrews 11, chapter six, I mean, verse six. Faith that pleases the Lord is this. It's very simple. That he exists and that he is the rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. Now, if we take a step back and think rationally, we know this to be true. We know there's gonna be a difference in eternity. I don't know if anybody in this room thinks that God is going to look at the work Paul did and the work I do on earth and go, yeah, those ghosts got pretty, pretty same. I barely can, I mean, Scott's a lot more handsome, but other than that, I don't really see a difference. I had to get one handsome joke in. So you just don't see a difference there. We all know there'll be a difference. And we, we know there's a difference. But the problem is we see the world through broken lenses. And so we can't figure out how can God separate and reward those differently and me not be in heaven going, oh, look at that guy's place. Or I don't know how it's going to work. He doesn't explain it. He doesn't explain it. But what he does explain very clearly is God is a God who rewards us for our hard work. First Corinthians chapter three is great, great chapter. And in chapter three, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth that has all kinds of issues. And in the church in Corinth, he's saying, we all have the same foundation. That is Christ Jesus. 
But then we begin to build on that foundation. And he says, some will build with silver and gold and precious stones. Others will build with wood and hay and straw. And then he says, God will then test our works. And some will remain and we will be rewarded for those works and some will be burned up. And he said, and he clearly says, this is why we know he's talking to believers. They will be ushered into paradise, into heaven. But he says, but they'll smell a little bit like smoke. It's a great little phrase that he uses. Basically saying, your works were burned up. You're gonna make it in. But there will be a difference for you and the person who worked really hard after salvation. Let me make it clear. After salvation. Becoming a believer costs us nothing. Being a disciple costs us everything. There should be a very big difference. And so this is good news to know that our God will reward us for forsaking these things that do not matter. I'm not saying it's easy to live a life set apart. If it was easy, the road wouldn't be narrow. The gate wouldn't be small. If everybody could do it, then it would be broad, but it's not. The things that God demands of us, it's hardworking. It's not distracted. It's knowing God's word. But I want you to hear he is the God who rewards us. This is great, great news to know that God is the God who rewards us for our work. He doesn't just say, well, of course, that's what you should have done. We need to live for eternity, for what matters. I, I do a, a lot of financial counseling. And it's always interesting because families, what matters to one family won't matter to another. They just, it's going to be different. And, and I don't, at the core, finance is personal. I don't, you know, if there are some people that don't ever eat out because they like to travel. There are some people, you know, they, they really like to celebrate birthdays. And so they spend a lot of money on gifts, but they don't do anything. They, they only eat bologna and cheese because they, they find something else more important. They, but everything they do and everything we do, we do to give up something else to make it happen. And what God is trying to show us is that he is worth giving these things up. And when we truly understand who he is and the greatness of who he is, then we don't get entangled. We spend time in God's word and we can be assured that God will reward us for that faithfulness. And to wrap this up in verse seven, he says, think over what I say. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. We need to talk about these things together. I would challenge you as a family and as a spouse or as a small group to say, what are the things in our lives that are distracting us? Be honest and be real. And dads, lead your family this way. Tell them, you know what? I haven't really done this before. This is weird. But let's sit down and talk about in our lives what is distracting us. What are the things that don't matter? And then let's encourage each other away from that. Let's talk about what it is to be in the word together, to discuss these things. Don't leave this place and think, all right, Sunday was over. You know, I told somebody this morning, me preaching is like a Marvel movie. Even if the, the story is sorry, at least you got something fun to look at. That's the, I don't want you to walk away thinking that way. I want you to say God's word changes everything. What are we doing that needs to change? Because I can guarantee you every single one of us, no matter how old we are in this room, 
have things that have entangled us. So it's time to challenge each other to get past them. And he says one last thing in 8 and 9. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with change as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. I want to be part of a church that is not distracted, that has forsaken the things of this world that do not matter, that loves God's word above all else, And I want to be part of a people that longs to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. The real question that you probably need to answer this morning is, if someone could watch your daily life, what would they see? D.A. Carson tells a story about when he was in college. And when he was in college, he met, he tried to start leading the Bible study. He got saved and was trying to lead a Bible study. And there's all these unbelievers coming, and they would ask really good questions. He was taking them through the book of John, and he didn't quite know how to answer the questions. And so he knew of a guy named David, actually, on his campus that was much further along. He was a grad student, and he was passionate about the Lord. That's what he knew about him. And so one of these days, a guy came to his um, little Bible study, and he told him, and he said his name was actually David as well. Um, but he told him that I'm from a, a, a church called the Church of Unity, which really meant that you know we believe in God, but we don't we don't believe in all this resurrection or Jesus stuff. We just love God, and God loves us, and everything's good. So why? What's difference does this Jesus make? And Carson didn't know how to answer him, and so he brought him to this grad student. And the grad student said, or the young man said the same thing to the grad student. I don't know what difference this Jesus makes. And he said he will never forget as he watched David, the grad student, stare him in the eyes that he said it felt like five minutes. It, it, it felt long enough to be awkward where he just stared at him. And then he said, this is what we're going to do. You're going to move in with me. I've got an extra bed in my dorm room. You're going to move in with me. I'm going to even pay for your food. And you're going to watch my life. You're going to watch what matters to me. You're going to see how I wake up in the morning and what I do first thing. You're going to see how I speak to other people. I want you to go to class. I want you to live, but I want you to watch me. I want you to see what matters to me. I want you to look at my life and see what I read, what I allow into my eyes, the things that I watch, the way I speak, how I pray. I want you to see that. And then at the end of this semester, when you've seen that, you tell me if Jesus makes a difference. My question this morning for you is if you had that opportunity, would you stare somebody in the eyes and say, come live with me and watch how I live? Or is that thought saying it out loud, you're thinking, well, I want you to see me on Sunday, but... That's a pretty good day for me, but not the rest of the week. And if that's true for you, today's a day to change that. Because I can tell you right now, Jesus is worth a life set apart. He is worthy of a life of men and women falling on their knees before him in repentance that says, I have been distracted. I have been entangled by civilian affairs and I am desperate for you to bring me out of it. 
One of my favorite moments in scripture is is Mark chapter nine, when a man's son is being ravaged by a demon, the disciples can't help, they bring him to Jesus. And the man looks at Jesus and says, if you can heal him. And it's one of these moments where it feels like God bows up a little bit because Jesus' response in verse 34 is saying, if I can. What do you mean if I can? I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. There is no if with God. And so this morning, my prayer is that you would react the same way the man did when he heard those words. Lord, help me with my unbelief. Because that's where it begins. You and I do not have the power within ourselves not to be distracted not to move away from God's word. And we definitely will not hear well done, good and faithful servant apart from the working of God's spirit in our lives. So for the next few moments, when we begin to sing, my prayer is that you would spend time with the Lord and you would say, Lord, help me with my unbelief. Let me live a life that's wholly devoted to you. Let's pray this morning. Father, I thank you for the beauty of your word. I thank you that you are worthy of worship. Lord, it's not that the things of this world aren't good. You just are so much better. Father, I confess, even before this room, that so often I am distracted by things that do not matter. And Lord, I don't want to be. You know, Father, I've prayed many times, just take away free will. I don't want it anymore. But in the end, Lord, I know you are honored in the struggle. And so, Father, I pray right now over your people. I pray, Father, that you would bring men and women out of darkness or the entanglements of this world, that you would convict of sin, that you would show yourself worthy of a life set apart. Father, I pray that we would be men and women who one day hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You are worthy of that life. Thank you, Father, for loving us when we were unlovable. Now I pray, Father, help us with our unbelief. We love you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name.